0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Welcome to Afternoon Cyber Tea where we talk with some of the biggest security influencers in the industry about what is shaping the cyber landscape and what should be top of mind for the C-suite and other key security decision makers. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, Corporate Vice President of Cybersecurity Solutions at Microsoft. Today, we are talking with Ian Coldwater, a leading cybersecurity speaker and practitioner. And we're talking about how leaders are and how should they be thinking about operational resilience. Ian was a teenage hacker who is now the lead platform security engineer at Heroku and specialized in hacking and hardening Kubernetes containers and cloud-native infrastructure. Ian, thanks for joining me today.
1: Thank you very much, and It's great to be
0: here. Talk a little bit about your journey.
1: I am a lead platform security engineer at a company called Heroku, which is owned by a bigger company called Salesforce. Before I went to Heroku, I was an independent penetration testing consultant specializing in Kubernetes containers and cloud infrastructure. Before I made the jump into working in cybersecurity, I was a DevOps engineer who also was working on Kubernetes containers and cloud infrastructure. That was like the thing that I did working at it from like infrastructure engineering standpoint. So I took my knowledge from infrastructure engineering and my knowledge of containers and then brought it with me to the security world. One of the things that I do is try to help engineers and security understand each other better because I think that we have a lot to learn from one another and communication and understanding isn't always as good as it could be. And so I try to help bridge those gaps build those bridges, and increase understanding between the two, as well as helping to secure workloads in the cloud.
0: So with your hacking experience, I know you have a... It really different and interesting perspective um, than some of the guests we've had on. On some of the challenges we're seeing as companies try to really develop a full operationally resilient platform. So in your opinion, how can companies best repair, prepare for a cyber attack? They're all going to be breached at some point in time, and we, they want to be able to minimize the event and minimize the attack. So can you talk a little bit about preparation and how that begin, begins even at the early development stages of a Kubernetes container or cloud native infrastructure? Of course.
1: So in general, and this is the case, not just with cloud native infrastructure. One of the first things that I think companies can do to effectively prepare for situations like that is to threat model. Because if you are threat modeling well, which involves things like what assets are you trying to protect? Who are you trying to protect it from? What are your capabilities in defending those assets? And what are your adversary's capabilities against you? If you can figure those things out, you have a pretty good head start on being able to strategize properly about like what to do in these situations. Because if you haven't figured those things out in advance, you're just sort of throwing darts at the wall and hoping that something sticks. And if you're really thinking about like what is the breach that you're trying to prepare for, you can get a better handle on how exactly to go about preparing for that thing that you're concerned about. And In terms of getting it ready from the earliest development stages, one thing that companies can do is really encourage communication and collaboration between security teams and engineering teams, because ultimately security and engineering are on the same teams, and teams that are able to communicate back and forth between those parts of the org are much better handled to be able to find vulnerabilities in the code base and fix them instead of trying to move very quickly, having security slow down and be a blocker and having that be a barrier to communication, they can actually help one another become symbiotic and
0: get better prepared for
1: dealing with those issues.
0: So I want to pull the thread on a couple of things that you said. One is We hear a lot of customers talk about how they need to protect their crown jewels because they're concerned that they don't have the resources, either funding or people resources to protect the entirety of their estate. So I'd love to get your perspective on that from a threat modeling standpoint and how companies should be thinking about what are their crown jewels. And then after that, I do want to talk a little bit about the fascinating subject of having security aligned with other parts of the organization like engineering.
1: Okay. So figuring out what is the most important to you and your company in relation to Either financial impact, reputational impact, or impact on things like the tech or the availability of a product, because some of those things are going to be much worse than others. And you really, I think, just want to sort of minimize the impact as much as possible. So if you can figure out your highest impact targets, those might be the ones that you most want to protect. And generally speaking, you know, we tell people that in order to secure their products the best, they, you know, they should practice defense in depth, they should like reduce their attack surface and limit their blast radius. And in this case, I think this is a blast radius issue, right? You want the blast radius to be as small as possible. And so you can figure out the things that are going to affect you the worst. Those might be the things that you might want to concentrate on the most.
0: I think that's a really good perspective. Thank you.
1: In terms of security collaborating and communicating with engineering teams, I could talk about this all day. It's so important because in dysfunctional teams where security and engineering work at odds with each other, either by design because of the way the process has been built, because people don't get along or because people are maybe not getting along because the process isn't working for them. You end up in these situations where engineers are often much closer to the vulnerabilities in the code base than the security teams are. They see these things every day. They're in the code base. And if you can create relationships where security is working closely with engineering and where engineering feels comfortable coming to security with issues then you can actually get the jump on vulnerabilities much faster because engineering isn't afraid of talking to security. And, you know, security is not grumping at engineering. They're like trying to work with engineering to get the thing fixed as quickly as possible. And when this works well, it becomes a virtuous cycle where they want to communicate with each other and work together better. It helps find more vulnerabilities and fix them faster. Whereas if people are fighting, if people aren't talking, if people are at odds with each other, it becomes, you know, nobody wants to communicate. The engineers will sit on their vulnerabilities or bugs if they find any because they don't want the security people to yell at them. The security people will be like, what are the engineers even doing with their time? And it, you know, it works out badly. And if I think if we really work to like understand each other, understand that we're working toward the same goals and like work together, I think that can really help a lot.
0: No, and we've seen uh, customers, you know, I talk to customers around the world and they're all concerned about the shift from DevOps to DevSecOps and trying to get ahead of security and trying to bring more alignment and to try to get earlier in the dev process. And what I find is that, and you hit it, right, is that it's a cultural, it's an organization, it's a mindset thing. What have you seen that's worked for for companies kind of to break down those barriers between the traditional security folks and the engineers who are actually developing the code.
1: I mean, as you said, it is, it's a culture. It's, a, it's an issue of culture. It's an issue of process. I mean, DevSecOps as a term comes from DevOps as a term, which I think some people use nowadays to refer to mean like automation or like, you know, continuous delivery tooling or things like that. But what it meant originally was breaking down the walls and silos between development and operations so that they could work together more closely and not at odds with one another in order to be able to get a handle on the software development lifecycle as a whole instead of like development doing stuff throwing it over the wall to operations who then would have to deal with it it was like working together and changing the culture such that the SDLC is seen as a holistic thing and devsecops again I think sometimes people will refer to it to use to like oh we can you know throw a vulnerability scanner into our pipeline and then then we're good it's tooling it's not really tooling it's culture and process and change around that so that development operations and security, are all seeing each other as part of the same whole and working together to improve the software development life cycle. And yeah, I think the companies who do it the best are the ones who are not going tooling first, but who are going in the direction of changing their culture and their process in order to be able to support that kind of collaboration and that kind of like holistic view. Because if you just bring in the tooling without doing that, it doesn't really work. You can, you can do some stuff with it. Maybe you can go faster, but it's not going to work out as well. Because that kind of like comfort and communication and being able to work together and increased understanding of one another really comes with cultural change. And that, I think, is the most effective thing that companies can do is really think about how to change their processes and the cultures around the relationship between security teams and other teams such as engineering and operations i think in terms of getting the best bang for your buck like that's the way to go cuz you can you can throw as many tools as you want at a broken process, but it will still be a broken process.
0: Well, I think that's the history of cybersecurity as an industry, right? We keep throwing tools at every problem instead of like going back to the core and saying, what is the root of the problem, whether it's a human root, a cultural root, a structural root, or it may be something that needs tooling. So I, I think that I think that applies to everything. I also wonder, you know, it's a risk thing, right? You need to de-risk it both for the engineer and for the security professional, So they both feel safe. You know, you, we overuse the term fail fast, but they right. need to be able to feel like it's safe to fail and that they have a peer right on that journey
1: yeah absolutely and yeah and as i said changing the culture such that people aren't afraid to communicate with one another and where it's you know if the understanding is that everybody is ultimately on the same team working toward the same goals and that figuring out how to work best together is the way to get that done the best that helps a ton but you know it does require like you know, it's it's not just culture. It is also a process. So that if you incentivize engineers to not tell you about their vulnerabilities, for example, because, you know, they're going to get fired if they report a bug, they're just going to sit on their bugs. They're not going to report them, right? Like humans are humans. Like people generally, you know, don't like sticks. And so you want to be able to incentivize the right things. You want to be able to incentivize communication and working well together and like having that be a thing that is seen as good work and not a thing that is a problem for one reason or another. And that, I think, goes a really long way.
0: I think it's interesting, too. We uh, had our annual Ignite conference last week, and I had the opportunity to brief a room of analysts, you know, your traditional industry analysts. And one of them asked me about what about an incentive that incents code to be produced with less vulnerabilities versus a stick on on the other end. And I don't think from a process standpoint, as an industry, we've probably paid enough attention to that, right, to incentivize the behavior we want. From a coding standpoint, I think we we almost consider programmers as machines, and we need to think of them more as humans.
1: So many problems end up being human problems at the end of the day. And I think we have We have an industry full of STEM majors who like to think of things as being perfectly neat and logical, but often humans aren't perfectly neat and logical. And being able to understand that and how humans work together is needed in a big way.
0: Completely agree. Let's move on a little because I do want to spend some time talking about Kubernetes and containers. So, you know, if I poll customers around the world, there's three things that they're concerned about. Well, th- there's several things they're concerned about, but I always hear a lot about IoT security, which we talked about in a different episode of this. And I they talk about DevSecOps and they'll talk about supply chain. But the other thing they're particularly concerned about is container security because it, it seems like there's this mystery and this mystique around containers and that there's something completely new and foreign, which they're really not. It's just a different way we're instantiating them, the architecture. So I wanted to get your perspective as to why containers, um, Kubernetes could be such a great attack surface and talk a little bit about safeguards and just have a conversation about your your perspective on how we could secure them and do a better job again from the beginning.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean containers aren't I think people hear about them and think that maybe they sound new and scary, but they're not really that newfangled. On the back end, containers aren't magic. They're just Linux. And If you understand how the Linux primitives work and how those things work together, it's not really that different in a lot of ways than securing Linux. It also is not all that different in a lot of ways than breaking Linux is. Containers are different in some ways because I think that people got used to the unit of the VM, the virtual machine, and containers most of the time don't have hypervisors. Instead of being like a sort of like contained operating system, they are a single process on a shared host that shares resources with not only their host, but also one another. And so there are different kinds of isolation that you have to do with container security, especially in a multi-tenant environment because any given container is only as secure as the code on it, the other containers on the host, the host itself, um, the operating system, everything on down to the Silicon and so you have to think of it in more of a holistic way in terms of how to secure it because it isn't just secure your container and you're done. It's having to be able to secure all of those layers of the stack, but that's not impossible. It just requires paying attention and doing your due diligence to like lock down the things along the way. Kubernetes in general is very open by default. The design decision with Kubernetes is historically that, the the defaults are quite open, it allows a lot of granular control. And so it isn't going to be as opinionated. You get to customize it according to your needs and your use case. And that's not bad. It allows a lot of flexibility and you know really allows an operator to be able to do a lot with it. But on the other hand, it also that can lead to a lot of complexity. It has a lot of moving parts and things to configure, and there's a lot that's easy to misconfigure. And so Kubernetes as an attack surface is interesting because it is so large, so complex with so many moving parts, all of which interact with one another for the most part, each of which has its own things that need to be dealt with. And and a lot of the time Kubernetes clusters are also very different because you can get them from different public clouds or installations. Every cluster can be a little bit different because there's so much customization that can be done to it with plugins and different parts of that ecosystem. And so as an attack surface, it's really varied. And it is a little bit hard to give one-size-fits-all kind of attack defense advice, except to give advice that is like sort of like general security advice that everybody should be following, such as follow the principle of least privilege, practice defense in depth, make sure that, you know, you are, that you know what's running in there, that you are limiting things that are communicating to only what needs to. And part of it is Kubernetes specific, which is you should have admission control, admission control on your clusters and be able to configure that right. But on the other hand, what that looks like can be different per your cluster and your use case. So it's a little bit hard to give one size fits all advice for defending it as well. Admission control is important. Doing your cyber basics, your hygiene is important. You know, there's, there's a lot going on there. There's a lot of advice that I could give. The CIS benchmarks for Kubernetes are very useful in terms of giving a guideline about like how to secure things properly, and there are other good resources out like out there like that too.
0: So I think that that a couple things I heard one um, good reference to the CIS benchmarks, which I. Th- think are fantastic for a lot of different um, security controls. And it's good to have a reference point for folks who are just looking for a vetted third party for Kubernetes. The other thing I heard that we, you know, it's so common in security to talk about least privilege and defense in depth and emission control and um, any type of access control, right? And I think people, when when you're talking about complicated or just what they view as new infrastructure, they forget the basics, right? And a lot of what we do in security, at least what we see in breaches, really does come back to security controls that you would apply everywhere.
1: Absolutely. And as a penetration tester, I mean, I am not consulting independently anymore, but I I was a independent penetration testing consultant specializing in Kubernetes and container cloud stuff before I went to Heroku. We like talking about the fun container escapes, and, you know, the kernel vulnerabilities. And it's like, it's really fun to like talk about the new stuff that's shiny, but like what you actually see in the wild over and over and over is people not doing their basics. Like that's how we get into most of the clusters that we get into is people not putting admission control on at all, not putting node restriction on, off, off of things, <laughs> you know, it's, you know, it's pretty basic stuff, but that would have made my day much more difficult had they put it on at all.
0: I think that that's really good input. The other, I guess I have another question for you is what do you think, you know, I, I see people also use shiny object, right? Oh, I need to stand this up in Kubernetes. Oh, I need to use Kubernetes for that. What do you think, or do you have a point of view on what business applications or what processes should be running in a Kubernetes cluster that that'll maximize the value to an organization?
1: You know, I've heard the term blog post driven development or resume driven development and like not every application is probably strictly going to need Kubernetes. It is extremely useful for the applications that need it. It is probably engineering overkill for the applications that don't. And a good thing for companies to be able to figure out is like, Because in some cases, maybe you do and it's going to be amazing for you. And in some cases, maybe you don't and it's going to be a lot of pain and wasted time. Things that really shine with Kubernetes are things that need to scale. Kubernetes scales extraordinarily well in large enterprises that can really do a lot for you in terms of getting your workloads out there, keeping them up, being able to like deal with and deploy them in like automated ways that can really help you a lot. If you are, you know, trying to, I realize this is not the target audience here, but, you know, if you're trying to run your WordPress blog on a Raspberry Pi in your basement, I mean, you could put it on Kubernetes, but it is probably more than you need. But yeah, it's, you know, think about what kind of workloads you're running. Are they stateful? Do they allow well for ephemerality? Kubernetes does support stateful sets, but it's complicated. Are you ready for that? Are you needing to scale? Like what kind of load balancing or failover do you need? Do you have a giant monolith that it's going to take a long time to break up into microservices? That's not impossible to do, but it is definitely a project that you should know and be prepared for. Are you running a microservice workload that makes sense in a Kubernetes context, in which case then you get to think about size? It's up to every given company. It isn't a silver bullet. It isn't going to solve everything. For the people who have those kinds of use cases who do need it, it's pretty great. and It can solve a lot. But, you know, just know what you're getting into.
0: I think that's great advice. And I also think the advice of, you know, not I like the resume driven development, like everyone wants to grow and have new experiences. And we, we want to encourage that. But you also want to be pragmatic of what you bring into production in your in your organization, right? Absolutely. You and and one other that. piece of
1: advice I would give is I don't recommend rolling your own. If you are running a large enterprise, you are going to have a much easier time in a public cloud than you are trying to get your engineers to get up to speed on every single possible thing that could be configured and deployed in a Kubernetes context. Public cloud bills can sound scary and expensive, and I'm not going to lie to you. They certainly can be. But if you do the math between the amount of time that it's going to take you for all of those engineers to figure all of that out and get it up and working versus the amount of time versus the amount of money that you're going to drop on the public cloud, Sometimes that math might work one way or the other, but do not underestimate how complicated rolling your own will actually be.
0: And I think that's the key, right? If you don't need to run a process there, then don't. And if you're going to, then make sure you're secure. Absolutely. So before we wrap, I have um, one last question for you from the perspective of your career, but also any challenges and just that one or two pieces of advice you'd give folks who are looking to get into cybersecurity or just looking to grow already in cybersecurity, but want to grow their career.
1: You know, I started out a DevOps engineer. I was doing kind of infrastructural work and I was interested in security. I was, you know, kind of studying up on that and like paying capture the flag games on the weekends. But it wasn't really something that I felt like I did. But it's funny because I say that now and I look back on it and actually what I was doing was security work on a DevOps team at first, you know, and I was like, Oh, someday I want to work in security. Like, that sounds great. But like, Oh, I don't, you know, I'm not doing any of that. I'm just doing this kind of irrelevant work over on the side, but I was doing security work and it wasn't irrelevant. It was actually incredibly relevant and it's why I'm on here talking about it now. So I would say for people who are interested in getting into security, who are already working in it, if they're working on some adjacent field of it and don't have a security title, don't feel like the work you're doing isn't security because you don't hear security people talking about it, especially if it is stuff that's kind of like relatively left field because you are doing security work. If you're securing workloads, you're doing security work, whether or not you have that kind of title. And like, don't feel like you would have to come and do it from scratch if you're interested in making that jump. So I would say like, Think about the software development lifecycle and IT operations as a holistic whole, and think about your role in it and don't think about it as being something that's completely separated. Think about how you're helping with that. And in terms of like making the jump into security itself, be able to speak to that, be able to tell that story of like, oh, I was helping to secure container and cloud workloads on this DevOps team. And now I'm interested in doing more security related work. Wasn't really that much of a jump as opposed to when I was like, oh, I just, I just mess with weird container stuff. I don't know. Security people do, you know, things with Mimi I don't know. <laughs> you know. I don't know about any of that. Don't sell yourself short. Think about the knowledge and skills and experiences that you're bringing and how they can help the security team that you'd like to join. And generally speaking, that's my career advice is like, Know that you're bringing skills and value. Don't sell yourself short. You know more than you think you do, and you bring more than you know.
0: That's fantastic. I understand that you're actually going to be keynoting at KubeCon. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Absolutely. So, my keynote at KubeCon is called Hello from the Other Side Um, Dispatches from a Kubernetes Attacker. And the thesis of the keynote is basically that the Kubernetes community is amazing, the people there are doing really impressive work. Rapid growth and rate of adoption of Kubernetes as a project has been really just stellar. And the community is great, like the people are really awesome. And that the sense of openness and possibility and trust that fuels all of those good things for the Kubernetes community can also be reflected in how much trust gets assumed when design decisions are made around building software or systems related to Kubernetes and cloud native infrastructure. And so the thesis of the keynote is like, it's important to be able to design for all users, not just good ones. And so when you're making your user persona, you need to be able to make personas for evil users because they have user stories too. And if we understand them, how they think, how they work, and then we can be able to tell those user stories and then design for defense appropriately around that. Because if we understand those perspectives, then we can grow together and learn from them and build stronger software and systems.
0: That's great. I'm looking forward to it. I'm hoping that there's a stream or a replay.
1: It will be live streamed and also recorded, so you can watch it in real time and you can watch it on YouTube depending on when you go about watching it.
0: It's been a great conversation. I do really appreciate you making the time and joining me today. I think our audience is going to get a lot out of this, just the really practical advice and the perspective that you bring as someone that they don't get to talk to all the time. So thank you so much for joining.
1: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Also, thanks to our audience for listening in and Please join us again for next time on Afternoon Cyber Tea. Please subscribe to Afternoon Cyber Tea on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One so you
1: don't miss an episode. Make sure you rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. Thank you for listening and join us next time for a new episode of Afternoon Cyber Tea with Ann Johnson of Microsoft. This week on Uncovering Hidden Risks... We explore how you can use a cloud-native application protection platform to solve different challenges. Be sure to listen in and follow us at uncoveringhiddenrisks.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.